Good evening and welcome to a new series. I am really excited. I'm just shocked so many of you came back after the last series, but that's okay. Seriously, those of you online, those of you here, I hope you got a handout and uh, this study is just gonna be very interesting. We're gonna study uh, a letter in the New Testament and I wanna talk a lot more about that idea in a minute, but letter in the New Testament that was written to people who lived in a city called Thessalonica. And so it's called Thessalonians. Uh, and so this is unique in a lot of ways. Now I know that last, at the end of the last series, I kind of teased you a little, said I'm gonna to talk to you about the oldest letter in the New Testament. And some of you scholars out there came up with a couple other ideas. And so those of you that said Galatians, good scholarly argument for that, fair enough. Those of you that said James, not a bad argument for that either, but I sort of quasi-arbitrarily went with 1 Thessalonians, okay? So they're all right there in the same time frame. So you guys did some good research. Let me say a prayer for us and we're gonna jump right in. Lord, thank you for the ability that we have to come together and study your word. And we don't take that for granted because that hasn't always been true as we will see in this study tonight and is still true in places in the world today. So Lord, we thank you for that. We thank you for the freedoms that we have in this nation. I pray earnestly for the leaders of our nation, that you would turn their hearts toward you, that Father, your glory would shine from this country and that we might represent you amongst all the world. But regardless, we as believers, I pray that you would strengthen our faith, that you give us the courage of our convictions, that we might show the love and compassion to this world. In Christ's name, amen. Well, as usual, here's the number you can text questions to during class, happy to take your questions. And uh, that's normal number, but it's also on your handout as well. So let me start talking about this in this way. I really want to approach this lesson, this series uh, in two ways. On the one hand, if you know a lot about the Bible and you've read the New Testament 50 times in your life. You read through the Bible every year, let's say, and you're very familiar with it, you've studied it. I want you to walk away from every lesson with some insight that you didn't have before. And I don't mean that I'm gonna be smart enough to do that. I think God's spirit is going to work in your life to use something to do that. So that's not about me, that's about what God might do to you. But I also wanna to talk to people that you don't know much about the Bible. I remember, because I wasn't young when I became a Christian, I remember becoming a Christian and thinking, I have no idea what's in the Old Testament, what's in the New Testament, and actually, I don't even know why they call the Old Testament old and the New Testament new. And I remember going to church and they'd say, you can turn to such and such, and I'm like, I have no idea where that is. And I don't wanna look like an idiot over at the front of the Bible and oh, it's at the back of the Bible. And so again, I'm not trying to say I wanna be that elementary, but I do wanna cover some things that you just may not have thought about because we take a lot of things for granted if you've been a Christian for a while. For example, the title, First Thessalonians. What does that even mean? And so I wanna start there. And the best way to start is this. Do you remember when people actually wrote letters? With your hand and a writing instrument on paper. People have been writing letters as long as there has been writing. Whether it's Egyptian pictographs, hieroglyphics, or whether it's alphabetic. Uh, people have been writing letters since time immemorial. We used to write letters with pencil and paper. You know what we do now? We type them and we call it electronic mail. But I want you to think about this. Those are letters. How do I, why do I say that? Letters in our history have always had the same format. Dear so-and-so, who it's to. Blah, 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 right? You talk in the middle like, this is in receipt of your information that you sent, or this is to confirm that at our meeting we agreed to do such and such and such, or, uh, this is to give you the specs on the new uh, equipment that you got, or, hey, we're all doing fine here, how's Uncle Joe's gout doing there? You know, I, it's, you know, it could be any kind of thing in the content, and then, sincerely, so-and-so, who it's from. And you know what's interesting is you see that in written letters, and now in email, 
we use the same format. And you don't have to use that format with email anymore. You know who it's from. It's in the line, right, of the, who the email's from. But we use those same forms. And so I want to start by showing you a letter just to remind you and get you in the idea because that's what we're studying. We're studying a letter. I know we call them books of the Bible, books of the New Testament. And there are different things in the New Testament, but a lot of what's in your New Testament are personal letters. So here is my favorite personal letter of all time. I think you'll like it too. This is a handwritten letter from Abraham Lincoln to a woman named uh, Mrs. Bixby, and I'll just read it to you. On the left is what you would look like if you were gonna give it to the Postal Service. On the right is what it would look like if you were gonna hit the send button. But it's still a letter. Dear Madam, this is like one of the classic letters of all time. I have been shown in the files of the War Department a statement of the Adjutant General of Massachusetts that you are the mother of five sons who have died gloriously on the field of battle. I feel how weak and fruitless must be any word of mine which should attempt to beguile you from the grief of a loss so overwhelming. But I cannot refrain from tendering you the consolation that may be found in the thanks of a republic they died to save. I pray that our heavenly Father may assuage the anguish of your bereavement and leave you only the cherished memory of the loved and lost and the solemn pride that must be yours to have laid so costly a sacrifice upon the altar of freedom. Yours very sincerely and respectfully, Abraham Lincoln. Just one of the best letters ever. And the reason for that is that little letter tells you a lot about the person sending it. It tells you more than you would think about the person to whom it was sent. And it contains information, in this case, information about feelings. And sometimes letters convey data, sometimes letters convey emotion. That's always been true. Well, in the New Testament, this letter is the exact same idea. It is a personal letter from Paul and Silas and Timothy written to a group of believers who lived in a town called Thessalonica. And it was written about 50 AD. So I want you to think about this for a minute. That's only 17 years after the resurrection of Christ. And I'm gonna show you a map in a minute, of course, and you're gonna see how far afield in 17 years that the, the, it has spread. That's what this is. Now, the only difference is their letters were a little different. You notice that instead of the recipient being first, it's who sent it. You know why that is? Purely because in those days, you used scrolls, right? This is before books were invented. And so you used a scroll. It is a real pain to say, dear Terry, blah, 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 blah. Oh, that's who that's from. So you don't want that at the end of the letter. You want it at the beginning. This is the way letters in the ancient world Actually, this is the way letters up until really pretty recent times were formatted. You can read all kinds of secular letters. If you could put the Greek of Thessalonians up and you could put the Greek of uh, soldiers writing home to their mothers. I mean, we have so many ancient letters, receipts, marriage contracts. I don't love you anymore. Dear John letters to soldiers who were deployed. I mean, you get everything in the ancient world, but they all look like this. They all look like, who is it from? Who's it to? And then a greeting. So Paul is, his Roman name, Latin name is Paulus, and it means uh, little. His born name, he was a Jew, his name was Saul. Silvanus is, his name is actually Silas, but he also must be a Roman citizen because he has a Latin name, Silvanus. Silvanus means woody. 
So I wanna make this really personal. My buddy Woody here, I mean, that, that is what Sylvanus means. And then Timothy, who doesn't have a nickname. And Timothy's a Greek, he's not a Jew at all. A young guy who's uh, learning the trade. And they're writing to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then Paul has this unique greeting, grace to you and peace. This, every ancient letter you read, reads this way. It is, Terry, to the Christians in this class, I hope you are well. Uh, I hope that you are healthy. Secular letters always had a little something. Paul changed that. The Christians all changed it, actually. And they changed it to grace and peace. And so this is a letter. And so as you read it, I want us to read it like a letter. So the first thing I've done is there are no chapters and no verses in what I'm gonna format for you because there were no chapter numbers, no verse numbers, no headings telling you what it was about. It was just a handwritten letter all the way through. Later in time, like thousand years later in time, they put some verse numbers in and some chapter numbers in so that you could actually tell people, well, go look in 1 Thessalonians chapter two. So you didn't have to unravel that scroll all the way every time. But it was just a, a handwritten letter the whole time. And the interesting thing about it is we, I've taken out the chapters, I've taken out the uh, verse numbers so that you can just read the paragraphs the way they were written. But like any letter, it tells you a lot about the sender, tells you a lot about the recipient. And this letter has some emotional language in it. I miss you very much. But it also has some business, if you wanna call it that, or theology. Like, I wanna help you live a better life. I wanna tell you what Jesus was really like. And so Christian letters tended to be longer than average letters, but that's really what this is, is a letter. So how did it come about? How did it come that Paul chose to write to them? Well, let's talk about the history of the church a little bit. This is a map of basically Paul's second mission trip. So Paul and Silas, uh, Timothy isn't from here, but they were in a church in Antioch in Syria. So he wasn't in Jerusalem, but when he became a Christian, he had to leave Jerusalem because they were trying to kill him. And so he ends up in Antioch and in Antioch, there are some Jewish Christians, there are some non-Jewish Christians because that's not Jewish territory. And he's teaching, he's a Sunday school teacher in the church there. And so the Holy Spirit comes one time and says to them, send out Paul and Barnabas and some others on these mission trips to go preach the word to other people. And so this is the second one that Paul took. And this is circa, this trip took from about 49 to about 52 AD. He traveled a lot of territory, and of course travel was slower in those days. But they left Antioch and they went through, this is modern day Turkey, and they get all the way to a city named Troas. Now where can I read this? The book of Acts in your New Testament is a little history of the church. And if you go read Acts chapter 16 and 17 and 18, it's gonna tell you a little travelogue of this trip. And so he's on this trip, he gets to Troas, and Paul has a dream. And in his dream, he sees a man dressed like a Macedonian. Well, where's Macedonia? Macedonia is the northern part of modern day Greece. If you remember our last lesson, we talked about Alexander the Great who conquered most of the known world in uh, the 300s BC, that's where Alexander the Great is from. He was the king of Macedonia and conquered most of the world. Well, about 300 years later, Paul comes through and he sees a vision that says, come and tell us the gospel. So he gets on a ship and he goes across to a port called Neapolis. This is the seaport. Uh, all these, by the way, every town I'm about to tell you about is still there today. I'll show you pictures in a minute. And so they come into this area and everybody they see on this trip, I want you to think about this for a minute. Paul and Silas and Timothy are the first Christians they've ever seen. 
This message is the first time they've ever heard about Jesus and who he is. Oh, they've heard maybe a little from the Jews about this God Yahweh and about this prophet Moses and about this Old Testament, but they don't know anything about Jesus. These are the first Christians they have seen. And so they come on the trip and they get to Neapolis and they go to Philippi. Now, those of you that are pretty familiar with the Bible will know that in the book of Acts, we know what happened to them in Philippi. Amazing story. They come into town, they go into the Jewish synagogue, they start preaching that this Jesus is indeed the Messiah, and a bunch of people to say yes, and they decide, I wanna follow this Jesus. You know, he is the son of the living God, right? They're baptized, they begin to follow Jesus, but then some people get riled up, and so they literally, the mayor, the city police, throw them in jail. And you may remember that's a pretty dramatic story in the book of Acts about how uh, there's an earthquake and the jailer becomes a Christian and they find out, oh no, Paul is a Roman citizen and we beat the tar out of this guy. We are in big trouble. And so they escort him out and say, please don't report this to the Roman authorities and please leave our city. And so he does. And so as he leaves Philippi, he leaves a little church there. And when I say he leaves a little church there, I'm not talking about a building. I'm talking about a handful of believers who go on living the Christian life in a community together. And he's gonna end up writing a letter to them later to see how they're doing, and it's called Philippians. It's a letter Paul wrote to the church in Philippi. That's what a lot of your New Testament is. It's just letters that Paul has written. They're, however, letters that we believe and the Bible says, are inspired by God. In other words, these are personal letters, but what is being said, the Holy Spirit is writing that in such a way that what God wants said in that letter is said. And the interesting thing about this, and one of the great evidences for this, is simply this. There is no other ancient letter that is 2,000 years old that you would read today and if you did, you would not find any application whatsoever to your life today. I'm gonna to suggest to you, you're gonna see all kinds of perfectly relevant things in here because this is inspired. This letter was written, Paul thought he was writing to Thessalonians. God, the Spirit said, oh no, you're gonna to write to billions of Christians over the next 2,000 years. And so that's what's happening here. So they move on from there and I wanna, home in on this map. So now here we are. He's over here at Philippi. He's been uh, beaten up and kicked out of town. And so here's where the book of Acts, again, Acts is kind of a history. It's called the Acts of the Apostles. You might as well just write a brief little history of the very earliest part of the church, All right? And so in Acts chapter 17, it said this. Now, when they left Philippi, they passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, and they came to Thessalonica. Why are they going this way? You see this Ignatian way? That is a road that runs all the way across half a continent called the Ignatian Road. And the Romans paved those roads and they went from major city to major city. Paul just was on the interstate. He just said, where are you gonna preach, Paul? I don't know, wherever I-40 goes. It's a good road, I think I'll just stay on I-40, I'm gonna pull off at every town, I'm gonna preach. They're gonna beat me up and I'm gonna leave and I'm gonna go to the next town and preach, right? But that's, I really want you to get a sense of freshness if you've read the Bible a lot. That's what's happening here. And so he went to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. So Paul went in as he always did and on three Sabbath days, so three Saturdays, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving to them that Jesus, that it was necessary for the Messiah, Christ and Messiah are the same word. Christ is Greek, Messiah is Hebrew, means the same thing. That it was necessary for the Messiah to suffer and rise from the dead. And he said, and this Jesus, whom I'm telling you about, is the Messiah. Let me stop for a second and say, what in the world is he reasoning from? He's reasoning from the Old Testament. This letter hasn't even been written yet. The New Testament hasn't been written yet. He's going to the Old Testament and he said, do you remember when Isaiah the prophet said this? Do you remember when Moses said, God will raise up a prophet like me? And uh, you remember when Jeremiah said, God's gonna have a new covenant and write his laws on your heart, not on stone. 
etc., etc. So he reasoned from the scriptures. He reasoned from what they knew to Jesus to make it sensible that Jesus, this Jesus is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many. So you have some Jews become Christians, but a great many of the devout Greeks. You know what they are? Heathens. So they're basically not Jews. They didn't grow up in church, and they were they had come to believe that, no, there's not a bunch of different gods. It's not Zeus and Aphrodite and all of that stuff. I actually think there's one God. I think these Jews have it right. There's one true God. And so they would go to the synagogue, sit in the back. They were kind of second-class citizens because they didn't follow all the Old Testament law, but they just knew, you're right, there is one God. So they were called devout Greeks. And a few of the leading women believed this message. And so this is what happened in Thessalonica. But the Jews were jealous that some of these people began following this Messiah and taking some of the wicked men of the rabble. These are people standing around uh, in Times Square, basically. They formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and they attacked the house of Jason. Who is Jason? Jason is uh, a Greek, you can tell by his name, not a Jewish name. Jason is a Greek who becomes a Christian and says, you guys can stay at my house. And so when they get mad at Paul and them, they go find Jason and they drag him into court and listen to what they say. When they couldn't find Paul and Silas, they dragged Jason and some of the other believers, brothers, before the city authorities saying, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also and Jason is letting them stay in his house. So let me pause there for a minute. So what are they actually saying about Paul and Silas? They've been there three weeks. They've been on this mission trip in Macedonia for not very long, maybe a month. And what's the accusation? These people are turning the world upside down. You know, I thought about that a lot and I thought to myself, wouldn't it be a great thing to have said about us? I, I mean that sincerely. I don't really relish getting beaten up and taken in front of the magistrates, but that will happen again. It's always happened in history. It will happen again. But my point is, what if people in Oklahoma City got mad at this group of believers or the Christians in town and said, these people are turning the world upside down? They don't look exactly like Republicans. They don't look exactly like Democrats. They do agree with us on certain things on social justice. They don't agree with us on certain other things. And you know what? So many people are coming to believe that this is true. So many people are starting to gather. They are completely turning our city upside down. That's what was happening here. That's the power of the gospel. And I think that would be a great thing to be said about us. But what are they actually going to charge them for? Because you know, it's not actually against the law to turn your city upside down that turns out no law on the books. Ah, but here's one that is on the books. It says, and they are acting against the decrees of Caesar. How so? They are saying that there's another king named Jesus. Jesus' Lord was an incredibly subversive thing to say. And here's my challenge to you to think about. This is a question for later. What is the most subversive thing that you could say today as a Christian? I can think of a bunch of things today as a Christian you could say that would be offensive, subversive, and get you in trouble, and yet were completely true. So my point to you is, that's still true today. You're not gonna get thrown in jail for saying Jesus is king, not our president or vice president, or whatever. You're not gonna get in trouble for that, but there are plenty of things you can get in trouble for. And so that's what they accused them of. And so the people in the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security, Jason had to post bail, from the rest, they let them go. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. So they just went on down the road to the next town. And when they arrived, what did they do? They got run out of that town. They went into the Jewish synagogue and they began to reason with the Jews from the scriptures that this Jesus is indeed the Christ. And this is what they did everywhere they went. They just went to preach Jesus as the Christ. And they were willing to reason. 
They didn't go in and say, you're all going to hell if you don't believe in Jesus. They went in and they said, look, you believe in the Old Testament, so do we, let me show you where this leads us. And that's why we like to reason this. I mean, it is an emotional decision, but it also includes our head as well. That's exactly what Paul was doing. So you're turning the world upside down and a very subversive message. And so they had to leave Thessalonica, the city of Thessalonica, quickly. According to Acts, they were probably only there a few weeks. So how much can you teach people about being a Christian in a few weeks? So they hustle out of there and they leave. I did want to pause here, though, and show you modern-day Thessalonica. Thessalonica still exists. And in fact, some of it's been excavated, but most of it hasn't because the modern city of Thessalonica is sitting on the old city. And for some reason, people have real heartburn if you start digging under their house. You know, it's just, uh, people don't like that. And so Thessalonica, by the way, is the second largest city in Greece. I mean, this today is a big city like it was a big city then. And so you see some pictures of the bay uh, in the upper left. This is great. Down here on, on the right, you'll see, uh, I was just always thought it was funny when we were there that you see these modern high rises and 2000 year old ruins right next to it. Yeah, it's just amazing. This is a little amphitheater here. This is a 2000 year old amphitheater right by your apartment complex. I don't know what they use it for now, but it's interesting for you to see that what we're talking about from ancient times, it's still there. Paul walked on those roads. I mean, it's still there. So Thessalonica is still a big town, just as it was in Paul's time. So he has to leave quickly. And so as we get into the letter, I'm going to tell you when he wrote this letter, but basically he continues on his journey, making his way on through Greece, and he's worried about the Thessalonians because they kicked him out of town. They weren't very happy with the rest of the Christians either. It's like, why are you believing what this guy did? We ran him out of town. Maybe we'll have to run you guys out of town too. So this is a little group of believers and they're undergoing a lot of civic pressure for what they believe. And so let's get to the letter. So the letter opens like this. And I just wanna free flow through here and tell you, point some things out. Because I want, as you read this, part of what's good about Bible study is not, you don't have to be a scholar, it's just sometimes you just, question the text, interrogate the text. You know, what's that word mean? What is this actually saying? So the letter simply opens, Paul, Silas, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We constantly give thanks to God for all of you, mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before God and, Father, and our God and Father the work of your faith and the labor of your love and the steadfastness of your hope. This is interesting, you got faith, love, and hope. You see that all over the Bible. But your trust in Christ and your expression of love because of Christ in you gives you hope for the world. And they needed some hope because they were sorely pressed. For we know, brothers loved by God, beloved brothers, that he has chosen you. In other words, you didn't pick God, God picked you. Because our gospel, the word gospel just means good news, our message, the stuff we were preaching. We, gospel to us, kind of a technical term as Christians. This word's used all over Greek literature simply to mean good news. I mean, when you had a new emperor, the emperor would proclaim the gospel, the good news that we have a new emperor and we aren't gonna have a civil war. That was really good news in those days. Because our message came to you not only in word, but in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we prove to be among you. And that's important because these are the first Christians they've ever seen. They're gonna hear what Paul says, but they're gonna look and say, this is what Christians look like. He says, you know what we proved to be and you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. So I wanna stop and talk about two things there. Actually, three things. This word church is also, so what does it mean? And I wanna go back to just break us out of our Christian mold. And I want you to think about this because these people have been Christians for three weeks and you're a church and they go, what's a church? You know, what is it? 
Well, they knew that word, because that word ecclesia is not unique to Christians, and ecclesia was a gathering of people. That word is used all over the place. They might just say the knitting ecclesia is gonna meet in the church parlor next week at two o'clock. You know, bring your knitting materials. I mean, that word ecclesia meant a gathering of people, getting together, a community of interest, a community of citizens. A lot of times when citizens would get together for a vote, they'd literally get together for a vote. I don't know if they required picture IDs, I don't know, but they did, they would get together for a vote and they'd call that an ecclesia. It's a gathering of this community of people. So a church is fundamentally not a building. I know you've heard this before, but I want this to sink in. It's not a building, it's not a denomination, it's not a name. This wasn't the first Baptist church of Thessalonica. I mean, it might've been, I think Paul was a Baptist, but we know what I'm saying. That's a joke for all of you that are not Baptists. But in all sincerity, they just know we're a brand new community of people. And that's what a church is, a community of people who have said, I am a follower of Jesus Christ. My faith, my trust, my hope is in him in my life. And it turns out that confession and that commitment to follow Christ changes everything about your life. And it changes everything about everybody in that community's life. That's what the word church actually means. So you've heard it said you don't need a building to have a church. That's true. You need a group of believers, people who are dedicated to following Christ. That's what a church is. And that every time you read it, I want you to think about it that way. I don't want you to think about it as an institution. Don't want you to think about it as a 501c3 corporation. You know, those are just modern ways that we have, that we have instituted this body of believers. It can be, it, the believers are the church. And so, talks about the church as a socializing group that's gonna bring a new reality. I mean, if you think about it, when you join uh, the band in high school, band, I like band people. I'll just tell you, I, I'm not musically gifted, but if you look at band people, band people love each other. And they love music. And they're different. I'm just gonna stop right there and say they're different. What do I mean by that? They really are community, aren't they? Football team, cheer squad. When you get people committed to something together, even in the secular world, you go, okay, that's a community. And they are living out their lives the same way. I mean, they all play football, or they all play music, or they all do this, and their lives kind of get oriented around it. Well, that's what the church is. Our lives become reoriented from whatever we used to be. And whatever, we used to be oriented around business and money. Oh, I used to be oriented around fame and fortune. I used to be a deadbeat. I used to be a CEO. It doesn't make any difference. You reorient your life in the church. That's what the church actually is. That's what turns the world upside down, not institutions. Institutions are useful. We build these buildings because it can serve people and take the kingdom message. If tomorrow it turned out that buildings didn't do that, if tomorrow we were like in China and the government showed up and bulldozed this place, the church is not really affected. Well, the facilities are. Maybe we'll have to quit doing a few programs that we're doing, but the church cannot be destroyed like that. And that's what Paul's writing to them about. Next thing is this idea of you became imitators of us. That should send just cold chills down your spine. What would it be like if you were the first Christian anybody had ever seen and you went in and you told them the gospel about Jesus Christ and you shared your testimony maybe and you showed them the scriptures and you said, sure enough, he really is. Now, here's what the Christian life looks like. And they said, okay, I'm just gonna be like you. You go, whoa, well, let's not go that far. You know, I don't want you to be exactly like me. But I want you to realize whether you consciously say that or not, that's going to happen. When you go to work, when you're around your children, when you're around people on the soccer fields, when you're in the grocery store, wherever you go, you are what Christ looks like to a lot of people. And I'm not saying that to say, well, just try hard to behave a little better especially on the Hefner Parkway, if you guys really don't mind. In all seriousness, I'm not saying act better. That's not what Christianity's about. Be authentic, that's what I'm saying. Just go be you. 
Well, uh, I'm, a, I'm a work in progress, I know, but you have the Holy Spirit in you and the Holy Spirit is transforming you. Go be authentically you. Don't put on a, anything for anybody. If you go out and you do something wrong, it's like, I lost my temper there. Then say, God, I repent, forgive me. I lost my temper, Holy Spirit. Work inside me and keep going. God will be faithful to turn you into the image of Jesus Christ. We leave the guilt behind and just go be authentically you as a 100% committed to be God's woman in this world or to be God's man in this world. So people are going to imitate you whether you like it or not. So just accept that reality. And so they were just open about it. They said, you became imitators of us and of course of the Lord, knowing that we're not perfect, but yeah, do what we do. I, Paul gets up, he says, I read my Bible, every, I'm gonna bring Paul into modern times. I read my Bible every day. I pray many times a day. I try to be helpful and build up all the people around me and I'm constantly sharing my witness about Jesus Christ. Sometimes I share it because by working hard and being a good employee, sometimes I share it by helping my neighbor, sometimes I help it. I share it by forgiving people. In other words, all the things Jesus was, be that. That is your work. And so, we too are gonna have people that imitate us. So he goes on and he says, for you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain, but though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, told you that story, as you know, we had boldness in God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. Well, now that you know what happened in Philippi and you know what happened in Thessalonica, you understand this letter. It's like, yeah, you definitely had a lot of conflict. They literally ran you out of town. For our appeal, in other words, our message doesn't spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive you, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak. Hmm, that's familiar. Uh, visit sowespeak.com. You'll find out why that's familiar. And that's where that comes from. We have been entrusted with this message about Jesus Christ, so we have to speak. He's like, we do this because we have to, uh, because we've given this and we do it not to please people. Believe me, if Paul was gonna please people, he would not have been preaching the gospel because most of his life was like this piece of his life. It was incredibly successful. A lot of people became Christians and it was incredibly difficult. Both of those are true at the same time. And by the way, both of those things are still true today. When you're undergoing a lot of difficulty, don't kid yourself that that may not be the most productive time of your life. Paul went through a lot of difficulty. You and I would call it failure. Like you started a church, but they ran you out of town. You didn't even get a building campaign going before you left, you know? It's like you were not a success, but in fact, it was a success. That's still true. Take heart, be encouraged. This is here for a reason. You're saying, look, I don't think I'm doing well, but at least nobody's beating me up and sending me out of town everywhere I go. Yeah, I know, so be encouraged. God's doing great things with you, just like he did with Paul. He said, so we are not here to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. He said, we didn't come to flatter you. We told it to you straight. We didn't come greed. We didn't want anything from you, nor did we seek glory. We weren't trying to be celebrities. He said, all we wanted to do was share the gospel to you, with you, because of what Jesus did for us. I don't want anything from you. I care deeply about you, but I don't want anything from you. I don't want a fan club. I don't want your money. I don't want uh, to flatter you so that you'll think well of me. That's not what I came. I came to tell you the message because it's a life-saving message. He said, we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her children. This is emotional. He said, we came to love you. In that short time, working together day by day, we came to love you. So, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel, but our very selves, because you had become so dear to us. He said, but since we were torn away from you, brothers and sisters, for a short time, we endeavored the more eagerly to see you face to face. So, needless to say, they're there about three weeks, he gets run out of town, he's worried. What are they, are they arresting the Christians that are there? Are they gonna continue in the faith? So he's worried about it. He said, and I wanted to come see you. We wanted to double back and come see you. And I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy before the Lord except you? You are our glory and our joy. Therefore, when we could stand it no longer, we were willing to be left in Athens 
by myself, this is Paul by himself, and we sent Timothy back to you to establish and exhort you in your faith so that no one would be intimidated by these afflictions. By the way, this word afflictions is the same Greek word that in uh, Revelation is called tribulations. They don't use that word much because tribulations is a really old word and this word is just more of a modern word to use afflictions or trials or difficulties, but it is the word tribulations. He said, so we sent Timothy back to see how you were doing because you know we are destined for difficulty. Well, that's interesting. I wanna talk about that, but first I wanna fast forward a little and tell you what's happened. So he went to Thessalonica, went to Berea when they were kicked out of town, and so he begins to make his way now down the Greek uh, peninsula and he goes to Athens. When he gets to Athens, he can't stand it anymore. And he says, Timothy, you gotta go find out what happened to the Thessalonians. And so he does. And so Timothy takes off and he goes back to Thessalonica and he talks to them. In the meantime, by the way, what did Paul do in Athens? That's also in the book of Acts. Preached one of the best sermons ever. And so you can read what he was doing in Athens. And then he moved on to Corinth. Athens was a huge city. Corinth was like L.A., I mean, seriously large place. He spent 18 months there. It was like Sin City, a combination of LA and Las Vegas. And I mean, it's just, it was so secular. There are no Christians there. He walks in and huge church starts there. So meanwhile, while he's at Corinth, Timothy comes back, says Paul left Athens, catches up with him at Corinth. That's when he writes this letter. And so this letter's written, eh, maybe 51 AD, right around there, from Corinth, writing it back to Thessalonians. And so he's writing to them and he said, we give thanks to you, you know that there were troubles, I know you're having troubles, but look at this, we told you. I mean, you're there for three weeks, think about this for a minute. If you are only gonna preach three times, three Sundays, to a group of people to become Christians, what would you put in the message? Well, I'll tell you what, it's interesting to me that Paul made sure that what got in the message was, by the way, if you become a Christian, you're gonna have a lot of difficulty. And three weeks later, they realized, whoa, I guess so. I mean, they arrested Jason and he had to put up bail and they, Paul had to sneak out in the middle of the night. I guess he was right. But in those three weeks, he manages to tell them that. Why does he tell them that? I mean, that's not good marketing, people. I mean, you don't wanna say, by the way, would you like to become a Christian? You're gonna have a lot of trouble when you do. Well, he's in good company. Look at this. I just picked out a few. This is Jesus in John 16, 33. I have said these things to you that you may have peace because in this world you will have tribulation, afflictions, this is the same word. But take heart, I've overcome the world. He doesn't say take heart, I'll protect you from these, no. He said, take heart, I've overcome the world. You're going to have trouble. Jesus was a horrible marketer. I mean, today you would say, no, 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 you cannot say that at the press conference. You can't tell people they're gonna have trouble in this world. You gotta promise them, you know, really good stuff. Like only good stuff will ever happen to you. Your children will score a 36 on the ACT. You will miraculously get scholarships to Harvard. Your boss will be the nicest person you ever met. Is like, that's what you need to tell people if you wanna convert them. Jesus said, no, I think I'll just tell them the truth, right? And what's happened to Christianity? Explodes. Here's James. Consider it joy, brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of all kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Peter, you are rejoicing, although for a while, meaning 70 or 80 years while you're on this earth, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, and by the way, he says your faith is more precious than gold, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor for Jesus Christ. Let's go on, Romans, Paul again. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or threats to kill you? That's what the sword means. No, 
That's not gonna intimidate us. And all these things were more than conqueror through him who loved us. Uh, John, book of Revelation. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are Jesus was on the island of Patmos. Why? Because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. All through the New Testament, right up front is the idea that this is a completely different way of living. And you're not going to fight the world. You're not gonna be mean to people in the world, but they are going to be mean to you. Being a Christian is gonna cost you something. Now, to be fair to us, one of the reasons this doesn't ring quite as true to us is we've lived in a little bubble in history in America. I'll just talk about America for now, where it's actually been socially acceptable to be Christian. And so there wasn't much cost to become a Christian. That's okay, that's happened before in history. It's not like we did anything wrong or there's anything bad about that. That's changing. I think you can just read your newspapers, you'll realize that's changing. It's not that way in the rest of the world necessarily. But what Paul is saying, what Jesus is saying, what James is saying, what John is saying, what Peter is saying, do you get the idea here? That's everybody is saying to you is, there's a cost to being a Christian. Now, when I say that to you and me, because we haven't had the afflictions that they've had, we say, yes, I know. There is a cost in the old me dying and following Christ. I have to quit doing some things that I enjoyed doing it, but it led to death. I realize now that that's death. So I had to change a lot of things. The Holy Spirit wanted to prune me. It's sort of like getting married, but way more, right? When you get married, you realize, I didn't marry a spouse. I just married into a total home makeover. You know, it's like, right? But my point is, if I said to you, if there's gonna be a cost to be a Christian, we would typically think, yes, you're right. My life is gonna change in a lot of ways. And some of them won't be pleasant in the short term. But when Paul said that, that was true for the Thessalonians too. The, the chief god of Thessalonica was Aphrodite. And I can't go into how Aphrodite was worshiped because this is PG-13. But it was, it was horrifically sexually immoral uh, culture. And so obviously a lot of things in their life had to change. But they also, it had a cost, social cost. That's what we are also starting to see. And I'm, this isn't a sermon about social cost. I want you to connect with these people. I want us to understand that you and I are not very much different than these. Some of you say, I'm not different at all. I've been a Christian for a few months. Some of you say, I've been a Christian all my life, but I, I sympathize with them because these same things have been difficulties in my life as well. We tend to think of difficulties as things that are in us, not outside us. But for them and for us or our children or our grandchildren, Christianity is gonna have a cost both ways. And so I, I appreciate the fact that the scripture is honest with us. But you know what's an interesting question to me, and I put this on your uh, handout for further discussion, but this is really worth some thinking about. And I'd really like you to think about it and maybe answer it to friends or spouse or whoever this week. Why would people follow Jesus Christ when they knew and they were told up front there's going to be a cost inside you, your life will change completely. There's gonna be a social cost to you in doing this. There'll probably be a financial cost. And for some of you, you might be put in jail, right? And so there's gonna be a big cost. Why would anybody become a Christian? Have you ever thought about that? It exploded. I mean, seriously, what are they saying? This Paul's turning the world upside down. Are you kidding me? He's got the worst marketing plan ever. He's telling people this is gonna cost you to be a Christian and yet, what's happening? People are flocking to it, why? And here's a clue, and this is what I would ask you to think about and answer. Why did you say yes to following Christ? Why did you commit your life to following Christ? Knowing that whether you'd fully experienced it yet or not, that it was going to cost you as well. Think about that a little bit because I think that's one of the things that he's basically has asked them and they've responded, I'm gonna follow Christ anyway. And you said the same thing. Those of you that are following Christ, you've said the same thing. I'm gonna do what Jesus said in Luke chapter nine. If you wanna follow me, you have to deny yourself, 
take up your cross daily and come after me. Leave all the other ambitions and things and turn them over to Christ. You said yes to that. Why did you say yes to that? Well, that's what happened here. And I just think that's one of the interesting things that Paul is gonna address as he talks to them about their trials and difficulties and tribulations. So, Timothy came back and gave him a report, and that's why he wrote this letter. This letter is probably written just a few months after they left Thessalonica. And you're gonna notice there's a second Thessalonians. What does that mean? It just means it's the second letter that we have that Paul wrote to the church in Thessalonica. It was written about a month later. I mean, he wrote two of them all. He was really worried about them. He wrote two letters to them. He said, but now that Timothy has come to us and brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us because we miss you terribly. For this reason, brothers and sisters, in all of our distress and affliction, which means things haven't gotten better for me, everywhere I go, people are flocking to Christ and the authorities are flocking to me. You know, in other words, I'm having a lot of distress, but oh my goodness, look what God is doing in the midst of this. We have been comforted through your faith. And this is a point I wanna make here too. As you read through these letters, go slowly and just think about it. This is a real letter from Paul to these people whom he loves, and he's saying real things. Interesting to me that Paul says, we've been comforted to know that you're still faithful even with the difficulties that you're facing. And I really can't, I'll just say this, but I really want it to sink in. That is so true of you today. It is true of each and every one of you that follows Christ. How encouraging is it to you when missionaries that we help support and they send reports to us and there are times when we read it and they'll say, well, so-and-so was put in jail, uh, but was then released. You know, and it was great, and we're continuing to spread the gospel, and we're under a lot of distress. What do you feel when you read that? You go, wow, I am so encouraged that look what God is doing, even in the midst of their difficulties. And here I sit in America, what am I complaining about? It encourages me then to go be even more on fire for Christ. That's a great reaction. When you hear about people being faithful in difficulties, it inspires you to go be even more faithful to Christ, right? That's true in the secular world, it's true here too. But here's the point, you are an encouragement to somebody when you are faithful in difficult times. You're saying, well, nobody's putting me in jail for this. I understand that. But you may be suffering difficulties at work. You may be suffering financial hardship. You may be suffering health problems, whatever it is you're suffering. And don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that you just say, oh, it's nothing, I'm fine. I, I'm not talking about once upon a time in fairyland kind of stuff. I'm just saying that in spite of my difficulties, I am faithful to Christ. And I pray to Christ and I am God's man, I am God's woman. I like that phrase a lot because it's more than I'm a believer. Oh, it's way more than that. It's like, you have all of me for all of time, no matter what happens. And when you say that, even in the midst of things that might say, well, maybe I don't wanna be a Christian. Maybe God isn't doing everything I expected of him. You too are an encouragement to people around you. That's why God made the church. That's why Christians gather. I don't know if you ever thought about this, but why do Christians need to gather? Uh, how many of you are introverts? Can't see you guys online. Okay, I'm the only one. Well, I'll tell you how I feel about it. And that is, I don't think we need the rest of you. I mean, to do this Christianity thing, we're fine on our own. In all seriousness, you know what I'm saying is, is we could just all be monks and nuns or we could just all be doing our own little thing, right? And we don't need to go to church on Sunday. We don't really need to be around other people. That's not the way Christianity was ever designed. God said, you are gonna be a community of believers. Why? Partly because what we do for each other is we encourage each other by our faith. Our faith in good times, but it's actually even more inspiring when we have faith in our hard times. And I just think it's interesting that Paul says, you brand new baby Christians 
have encouraged us because you have been faithful. So whether you're a teenager and you say, I'm too young to have an effect on anyone, or you are an anti-teenager, I'm too old to have an effect on anyone. That's not true. Your faithfulness in whatever stage of life you're in is an encouragement, and in fact, it's your calling in the church. It's the reason God put you in the church. Make sense? Okay, this is getting preachy, let's move on. But I'm really serious about that. I want you to identify with these people just as those baby Christians encouraged, and you're gonna find out later, all of Macedonia heard about the Thessalonian Christians and oh, do you hear what's happening to them? They got put in jail, they're, you know, they're persecuting them. All of Greece and Macedonia, that whole area I showed you on that map, was encouraged when they heard the story that they're still faithful in Thessalonica. That's just, that's as true for you as it is for them. I know you wanna think of them as people long ago and far away and somehow as somehow magical people that are different than me. That's not true. You have the same effect that they've had. We have the same calling that they have had. And so Paul ends this section, and I put the references down there for you, but actually letters are written in section. He's gonna change the subject in a minute. But before he does, he, he gives what's called a benediction, which is just a word of blessing. And he's gonna thank God that they have stayed faithful. This is one of the prettiest little benedictions in scripture. He says now, and this is how you can tell he's through with that topic and he's gonna move on. May our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you, meaning make it possible for us to come see you because we miss you terribly. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for everybody. And you're gonna see this a lot. And you're gonna say, don't Christians love everybody? Yes, but it's not the same. In that, if I said to you, you as a Christian love everybody, but do you think you might have a special place for your spouse or for your children? You'd say, well, yeah, I, I do care about other people. I do love other people. I'll do good turns for other people. I'll ex I will express love for other people. But yeah, there's something special about my children. Good, there should be. They're your first ministry. Your marriage and your children are your first ministry from God. But what he's saying here is increasing your love for one another and for everybody else out there too. But I don't want to kid you that this bond is not the same as the bond you will have with people in the world. You will love them. You will do good to them even if they don't do good to you. You do love the world, the people in the world, but this is family, this is different. And we need to remember that in the church, is not that you're second-class citizens out there, Jesus called the people who don't know him yet, people that are lost, and we love them, and we're concerned about them, and we're actually, like Paul, gonna go to pains to help them. Maybe it's healthcare, maybe it's food, Maybe it's counseling. Maybe it's, in all cases, it's hearing about Jesus Christ. So you're gonna do those things, but this is different. There's a reason that the scripture uses, this is not normal, by the way. People in letters didn't call each other brother. They didn't call each other sister. It's like, you're not my sister, you're just a friend of mine. You're second cousin twice removed on Aunt Ethel's side and I can't even keep it straight. But they didn't use that language. So the idea of a church as a community of people, Christians went even further and they said, you are actually all been adopted into God's family. You literally are brothers and sisters. Now act like brothers and sisters. Well, wait a minute, I wanna be careful about that. Don't fight so much as brothers and sisters, but you get the point. And so that's what he wants for them. He says, I pray that God will bring us back to you and that the Lord will make you increase and abound in love for each other and for everyone so that he may establish your hearts and you will be blameless in holiness before God and Father when our Lord Jesus Christ returns. Beautiful little benediction. And so you, you've seen the history now You've seen where this letter came from. I hope you have a good feel that, okay, this is not mysterious. This is literally a letter written. And it's a letter of Paul who's concerned and he misses them and he's worried about them. 
And Timothy comes back and says, they're doing okay. They're still faithful. And he's so happy. And he writes this letter. And now what he's going to do is he's going to turn in the letter and he's going to say, now, I didn't get to tell you everything I wanted to tell you about Jesus. And so what would Paul say to these new believers? The same thing God wants to say to you and me today. And so as we start the next paragraph, the next section of the letter, his instructions for these earliest Christians were the idea of holiness. And so what I want to talk with you about is what in the world actually is holiness? What was it for them and what is it for us? And what does God actually expect for, from us? So now that he's given thanks for them, he's gonna turn and he's gonna say, good. Well, since they ran me out of town before I could tell you everything, I did tell you the tough parts. Now I wanna tell you some of the good parts. We're gonna talk about holiness. We're gonna talk about how to live together as a community of people. He never got around to telling them what happens after you die. So we're gonna talk about the rapture, we're gonna talk about the end of time and all that. That's our roadmap going forward. Those are the things that he needs to tell them now that they have the basics down. And I think you and I will profit from hearing it as well. So this is your last week where you can say, I did not know that I was supposed to be holy because next week we're gonna talk about what is holiness what does God actually expect of you and me? Okay, I'll see you next time.